There are two words which I associate with school, primary and secondary, which all these years on, even today, make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. The two words are punishment, exercise. Now, I know this is Charlotte Chapel, so you were too good to get one of these. Not so the preacher. Unfortunately, I can define for you exactly what these are. Set punishments for classroom crimes. And I can tell you that they were always painful. Punishment exercise wasn't just for effect. However, in a strange way, and with some time to reflect on it, I now appreciate this discipline that was placed upon me those years ago. Because you see, the exercise did more than merely dish out discomfort. That's why all these years on, I can remember not only the nature of the punishment, but the nature of my crimes. You see, the goal of the punishment was to remind me of my offense and to dissuade me from repeating it. And having written, I will not talk during math class, I will not talk during 150 times. Funny thing, next time you thought twice. You see, this is part of good discipline, is it not? If discipline is to be good and meaningful and honoring to God... There must not only be pain, though there will be pain, there must be purpose. There must be reason behind the reprimand that is revealed to the recipient, causing a change of direction in life. That is true in the realms of human discipline, if you have children. It's not a good idea to punish them, admonish them, and don't tell them why. But more importantly, this principle is also true of God's disciplining us. Because as we continue this series in Jeremiah, we've been studying it under this title, Living in Hope. And as we come this morning to the 13th chapter, we encounter head-on the reality of God's discipline and Most importantly, the rationale behind his discipline. If you've ever wondered, why does God discipline those he loves? Then this text in Jeremiah 13 has some answers for you. And it may be humbling answers. So, let's get into the text. Jeremiah 13 This morning, please turn there in a pew Bible if you don't have one with you. We're going to just read and consider the first 11 verses. 
felt that it might be better just to zoom in and ponder these 11 verses than just rush through and maybe not get into as much depth. So let's just read this together. And as we do, see if you can guess why the sermon is titled The Highs and Lows of Discipline. This is what the Lord said to me. Jeremiah is speaking. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt as the Lord directed and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go now to Perath, and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So I went and hid it at Perath, as the Lord told me. Many days later, the Lord said to me, Go now to Perath and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Perath and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honor. But they have not listened. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Charles Colson, the Christian writer and formerly a politician, once wrote this. What God wants from his people is obedience, no matter what the circumstances No matter how unknown the outcome, no matter what the circumstances, obedience, no matter what the outcome is in terms of us knowing how it will turn out, obedience. That's the kind of obedience which God called Jeremiah to at the outset of this 13th chapter. Just imagine the situation. You are Jeremiah. And you have been preaching a message of judgment for some time now. It's hardly been easy. It is never easy to get up and to proclaim that God is just and that people are sinners and that judgment is coming. But at least until now, Jeremiah has been clear about what to do and most importantly, why he is doing it. But now, at the beginning of the 13th chapter, Jeremiah steps into the unknown. And God calls him to do something that he does not understand, at least yet. 
In fact, there are three, note them, three calls to obedience during which period Jeremiah is in the dark. Firstly, he is to buy a linen belt and wear it. It is a strange request. Verse 1. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist. Actually, although the NIV is resounding here, we don't know for sure uh, what this clothing was, except for the material that it was linen. Uh, Some people suggest that it was a thigh-length undergarment, sort of like a pair of shorts. Uh, Other people believe that it wasn't so much like this. It was actually a belt, uh, a sort of sash that you wore over the clothing, not under the clothing. Uh, Being a Scot, the suggestion that I liked the best was one commentator who suggested that this item was actually a short kilt. I don't know if that's true, but I just liked that. We don't know for certain what it was. What we do know is that Jeremiah heeds the call. He obeys God's word. He buys the linen. He wears the linen. He puts it on. And if it was over his clothes, it would have been visible and remarkable. Look at Jeremiah. Not usually one for the wardrobe. And check out his belt. It's rather nice. And yet all the time, Jeremiah doesn't know the purpose of this. And then the word of the Lord, verse 3, comes to him a second time. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go now to Perath and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So first he had to buy the belt. Secondly, he has to bury the linen. And the strange gets stranger. I mean, just imagine this. The Lord speaks to you one morning audibly. You think this is going to be something very important he's going to say. First he says, go out to the nearest shop and buy, you know, a nice belt. Put it on. And secondly, he says, now take that nice and beautiful belt and go and bury it somewhere. I mean, we've heard of sale and return, but not buy and bury. It's a new one. And it is even more strange when you understand the geography of this. Perath, or you might say in the footnote, the Euphrates. Well, this wasn't just round the corner. Uh, The Euphrates River was significantly... Uh, on the borders of Babylon, that great superpower that is gathering steam to the east of Jerusalem. And uh, depending on which part Jeremiah intercepted, it was anything between two and three hundred miles away. In fact, it's so far that some have suggested Jeremiah didn't actually make this trip. Maybe this was just a vision in Jeremiah's mind. And yet we must uh, know that in these days, this uh, was a trade route between Jerusalem and Babylon, and lots of people did travel it. And we must remember, too, that the prophets, for them, when they received the word of God, convenience was hardly ever an issue, was it? I mean, it 
It wasn't convenient for Hosea to marry a prostitute. Remember, he had to do that. It wasn't convenient for Ezekiel when the Lord told him to lie on his side for a few weeks to convey his word. And it wasn't easy for Jeremiah to go this 600-mile round trip, but he did it. Verse 5, so I went and hid it at Perath as the Lord told me. And the inference is that he travels back home, back to Jerusalem. He waits there. And after some time, a third command comes, go and fetch the belt. Many days later, the Lord said to me, go now to Perath and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Perath and dug up the belt, obviously remembered where he had put it, took it from the place where it was hidden, but now it was ruined and completely useless. And that's what you would expect, isn't it? If you buried your nice suit in the back garden, men, for a couple of weeks, and you dug it up, it would be useless. Now bear in mind, Jeremiah has now made a 1,000 mile trip, and he still doesn't know why. Let me just pause on that for a little second. Doesn't that say something about the importance of unqualified obedience to God. What God wants from his people is obedience no matter what the circumstances, no matter how unknown the outcome. Remember the quote. When God says buy, we buy. When God says bury, we bury. Or fetch, we fetch. Whatever he says, however much we understand his purposes in it, We do it. Are we a just do it church? It's not the main point of the sermon, but Jeremiah exemplifies this for us wonderfully. Uh, Some years ago, I was a a leader on a two-week mission team in the summer months. Most of us on the team were of the younger generation, But there was one chap on the team who was a little bit different from the rest of us. Not least, he was a lot older than we were. He was retired. It seemed strange when you're 19 years old. Can't imagine that. And uh, what made things a little bit worse was he was a terrible snorer. And we, the other four young guys, had to share this small room with him. John was his name. God bless John. He wasn't popular those first few nights. By the end of the fortnight, though, John was one of the most popular members of our team. He was an MVP, a most valuable player. Because what we came to appreciate about John was that he was a just-do-it guy. He actually wasn't really into all the strategizing. He didn't really need to be part of all the discussions and all the deliberations which we wanted to be involved in. See, we were talkers, but John was a doer. We need doers in the church. Jeremiah just did it and did it and did it again. And his obedience, notice, is now rewarded... 
as he receives the explanation for what he's been doing. And in verses 8 to 11, we discover that Jeremiah's actions have a symbolic significance. God, till now, has spoken through his word, through speech, which is always God's primary means. But sometimes when the Lord really wants to get his people's attention, when they are not listening, he, he sort of vamps it up a gear and he becomes audiovisual. He says, if you've got your fingers in your ears, well, you, you can't put your fingers in your ears and cover your eyes at the same time. So I'll show you what I mean. He says, and what I want to show you is something about the discipline you're about to undergo and the reason for it. So there are two reasons, two points to cover in the remainder of this sermon. First of all, and it's actually the last in the text, but it's the first chronologically, is the reason of the high renown of God. This is something that probably many of us don't relate to discipline. Many of us, when we think of God's discipline, immediately, and not wrongly, connect it to the love of God. We know that in Hebrews chapter 12, the clearest, perhaps, New Testament passage on discipline, that connection is made. Remember Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves. And we notice that through Jeremiah... This is where God begins here, too. Uh, This commences the explanation that his purchasing of the belt and his wearing the belt represents God's covenant love. Look at verse 11. For as a belt is bound round a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to me. That's a vivid and and a beautiful picture, isn't it? This belt is bought. God has purchased his people. This belt is bound to the waist. God, the Lord God, has bound his people to himself like a belt. In fact, this is the same intimate word that is used back in Genesis 2.24. When God instituted marriage saying, a man will leave his father and mother and be, and here's the word, united, bound to his wife and become one flesh. How much does God love his people? Like a devoted husband loves his wife and becomes that one flesh reality. How close is the proximity between God and his people? Like a belt bound round your waist. And you know, Christians, believers this morning, do you realize that God loves you, but he does not love you at arm's length? I understand that we know this, but do we feel this in our experience? A popular song used to say that God is watching us from a distance. Some Christians, in their experience, believe that God loves them from a distance. 
And it is a lie from Satan himself. God loves us this much. He buys us and he binds us to himself like a prized garment that he treasures. That is why if you are not a believer this morning, you are missing out on so much. Do you not know that God demonstrated his own love for you in this? That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. There is no doubt this morning that God loves you. And if you are a Christian, you need to know this love, but you also, it's very interesting, need to recognize that it doesn't stop there. We may say it like this, that love is the environment for God's discipline, but it is not the full explanation for it. I mean, just think of someone that you, you love, maybe your wife, your child, a friend. Uh, the first thing you think about when you think, how can I express my love? Isn't necessarily discipline, Right? I mean, there has to be some reason why you discipline them in your love. And this is what Jeremiah goes on to say as the Lord inspires him in the second half of verse 11. Let's read the whole verse. As a belt is bound around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah to me. So, this is a reminder. God's love is the environment. But what is the goal? Read on. To be my people for my renown and praise and honor. The belt not only depicts God's covenant love. The belt also depicts God's commitment to his glory. Because when God loves you graciously, mercifully, the way he does, the display of that as people see it, as the world sees it, honors him. They say, that's a great God who loves people like that. And therefore, Philip Ryken, one writer, he's, he's right when he says that the chief purpose and ultimate goal of human beings is to be wrapped around God's waist like a fashion accessory. When we are at our very best, we adorn God with glory. God loves us, folks. But he loves us so that he, not we, get the praise. In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 4, Paul is describing the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And he is struggling to do this. And one of the blessings that he mentions, interestingly, is the love of God. This is what you receive when you become a Christian. Isn't it great? But listen to what he says. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. But listen why. To the praise of his glorious grace. We don't usually think like that. God adopts me and loves me to the praise of his glorious grace. But that's how God thinks. And, and this is crucial because it, it provides the backdrop, the, the context of discipline. 
if God not only loves you, but loves you in this particular way, namely for his glory, then when you act like a rebellious son or daughter, when I act that way, he must, for the sake of his glory and his name, bring us into line. Now, we've had that experience if we've been young, well, we were all young once, I guess, uh, misbehaving, maybe in a public place. And I don't know, maybe this is just me again, but uh, one of the things that mum used to say to me was, you're showing us up in public. Showing us up. See, she wasn't just interested in the good the discipline would do to me. There were greater implications for my behavior than on whether it reflected bad on me or not. Because someone around might say, and especially if they saw me doing it all the time, what kind of parents are they? How are they bringing them up? And you see, the high renown of God, this is the first reason. It's the background to God's correction. But notice a second reason in verses 8 to 10. Not only the high renown of God, but I suppose the flip side. The humble reproach of man. Judah's refusal to live for God's glory was actually evidence of a pride problem. You notice that this is the explanation for the rest of the parable. Jeremiah has buried the belt, remember? But now he retrieves the belt and it is ruined and completely useless. Now, what's that bit of the parable about? Verse 9, this is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This is always God's way in Scripture. Read the whole Bible and you will find that God will not, does not, negotiate with pride. Compromise with conceit. But when he meets our puffed up self-importance, he does not flatter it, he ruins it. And yet the problem is that so often we don't see our own pride. Our pride is rather like the nose on the front of our face. Though it may be prominent, we cannot see it ourselves, right? And so the Lord says, let me help you. I'm going to give you an anatomy of pride. And, and there's two things that he mentions by which we can detect. Is pride going on in here? Number one, he says that the, the ears of pride are closed. You notice that verse 10. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words. And actually, verse 15, if you drop down the passage, hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant. Notice the connection between pride and listening. For the Lord has spoken. Apathy to God's word is a mark of arrogance. Whenever we think or assume that we are somehow above God's word, 
we are perilously close to crossing the border into pride territory. Now, of course, we wouldn't like to put it like that, that we are actually refusing to listen to the word of God. And yet, is it not evident, you know, when someone asks us what we've been learning in the sermons the last few weeks, and we sort of blush a bit and think, what, you know, what book are we studying? Or, or, or in the Bible study group, when everyone else seems to be so enthused about the study, and, you know, we're just not excited. Or when someone asks us, as in fact Peter does to keep us on our toes in staff meetings, what are you reading in your daily readings? Uh, Colin, could you turn us to something? And you're stuck. Because you're not reading, and if you're not reading, you're not listening, and if you're, if you're not listening, then there's pride in your heart. That's the logic of this. But let me just apply this for a moment in the area of what we're doing right now. In preaching. I wonder how seriously you take your responsibility of listening. Don't mean this morning necessarily, but whenever someone preaches from the Bible in this pulpit or any pulpit. It's great that you're here, but it's not enough. It's important that the preacher is prepared, but it's not enough. It is hopeful that the preacher is clear. It would be great if he was a little bit interesting, but it's not enough. See, you have work to do in the pew just as much as the preacher has work to do in the pulpit, and your work is listening attentively to God and what he is saying to you. Richard Baxter was a great pastor a couple of centuries ago. And he throws out a challenge for us this morning. I'll just read this to you. He says, make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it. Cast not all upon the minister, the preacher, as those who will go no further than carried by force. You have work to do as well as the preacher, and you should all the time be as busy as he you must open your mouth, changing the picture there, we need to open our ears too, but open our mouth, digest it, another cannot digest it for you, therefore be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart in hearing as well as an idle minister. The first part of Pride's Anatomy is closed ears. Secondly, Second part is that the heart of pride is wayward. That's verse 10. These people follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them. Pride is always an idolater. Because when you believe that God is not the greatest being in the universe or when in practice he is not the final authority, when in pleasure he is not the most beautiful, the most majestic in your affections, then you will find other entities, other authorities, other beauties, other pleasures. It's just the way things are. There are no atheists, practically speaking. 
Sadly, this is what Judah had done. We've seen this, that they have been currying the favour of the nations around them. Egypt in the south, Assyria in the north, Babylon to the east. They've seen that these nations are doing pretty well for themselves. Why, let's maybe call on these gods that they're worshipping. And the Lord says it is a futile exercise. It's as futile as traveling 300 miles to Babylon and burying a belt there to be ruined and traveling all the way back and going all the way back to the river and digging it up and just finding that it's useless. What was the point? You see, that is the point. Idolatry is a useless practice. It's futile. But how often we do it, don't we? Let me ask you, do you on every occasion place God before your family? If not, family is an idol. Let me ask, on every occasion, do you place God before your money? When you don't, it becomes an idol. And what about people idols? I've been reading a great book this week by a guy called Edward Welsh. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And he talks about people idols. It's probably the, the biggest God that we worship. We're totally obsessed with the opinions of others and what they think. But if we fear man more than God, then people are our idols. And so often, even if these are not true, we place our own will and and our own selves before God. Nikki and I, my wife and I, are house hunting at the moment. Uh, I think that's a modern day punishment exercise. We put a bid in on a house the other week. We both liked it. That's not easy to happen. Praise the Lord. We prayed over it. And heart of hearts, you know, we hoped we were going to get it. And we prayed, God, help us get it. But we didn't. And one part of me, I guess this was the spirit, the spiritual nature. Well, I had the right answers for this. God overrules everything. He decides and dictates things the way he wants, uh, and it's obviously not his will. That's what one part of me said. There's the flesh in there too, unfortunately. And my sinful nature was whispering in my ear. In fact, it was stamping its feet. And it, it, it was asking, why can't this be God's will? I mean, it seems good to me. Does it always need to be thy will, not my will? I'm probably a bigger sinner than most of you. But maybe, maybe you've heard pride talking to in your own heart. Perhaps when disappointment like that flushes it out, you really thought something was going to happen for you. You had it all mapped out and God was going to deliver it. And when it didn't happen, you had all this ugly stuff coming out. The health crisis you didn't want. 
The job you did want, but you didn't get. And discipline just flushes out what is really in there, that we have this pride, we want things our way. And sometimes discipline, therefore, is the only recourse for God to humble us. We actually need some lack, some agony to remind us that we are not God. And it's better that way. And we need God to do that often. I mean, we should pray about this. We should humble ourselves as much as we can before the Lord. But, you know, often it's only the Lord that can really break our hearts. Because the way that we are wired is that we want to succeed. We don't want to fail. And so God has to break us through circumstances and hardships, which Hebrews 12 says we should regard as discipline. And I want to finish this with this encouragement this morning, that if you are really eager to have the kind of heart that God desires, if you really want to be humble, if you really want to give Him the glory in your life, if you are earnest, then God can and will do that work in your life and in your heart. God can do it. He did it with the people of Judah. Robert Morrison Some of you might know that name. He was a missionary to China in the 18th century. And I love one story about Robert Morrison. He arrived in China. And, of course, in these days there were hardly any missionaries. And one of the locals thought it was funny. Laughable. He didn't attack him or persecute him or try and get rid of him, he just laughed at him because China was rock-hard soil to the seed of the gospel. It seemed impenetrable. And with scorn, he said, Mr. Morrison, do you really expect that you will make an impression on the idolatry of the Chinese empire? Betty thought there was no comeback to that one. And Morrison said, no, sir, I won't, but I expect God will. God will. That is happening today in the country of China. And God can do it, if he can do it in something as large as China and as impenetrable as China, why he can do it in your heart. And in my heart. Maybe he's been doing that these last weeks through these sermons. As the hammer of God's word has been pounding, it feels, pounding you again and again. Maybe he's been digging up some uncomfortable things. About a lack of humility. A lack of appreciation for him. A fear of the Lord. It just doesn't dominate our lives. It dominates the Sunday service when we come. But the rest of the week... And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. If you are undergoing hard times, God can and will use it for his glory and for your good. So let's respond to him in repentance and in trust this morning. And let us thank him. How often do we do this? 
for his discipline. 